Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 Podcast, your weekly show that explores the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. We are breaking the fourth wall Yay. this week. We're backing off Prime by our definition of it. That thing that we've decided that any time a story features a creator addressing the audience directly, that we are justifying it as a visit to Earth Prime. The, yep. the conceit that this is the Earth that we all live on, reading the adventures of the DC Comics superheroes. This week's visit to Earth Prime comes via issue 89 of Justice League of America, published on the 4th of March, 1971. Peter's going to tell you about the cover. Certainly am. We're at that period where there is not the standard DC comic box corner logo. No. Instead, we've got DC in a shield. It seems to have an eagle at the top Mm. with Justice League of America written underneath it. Mm. Not really a hugely attractive logo, I'll be honest. It's not the best. Bit of experimentation. The other ones have all got their heroes standing on them, but obviously because it's the JLA, they can't really do that with this. Mm. It's it's not very effective at all, is it? Yep. So anyway, we've got the world's greatest superheroes, Justice League of America, shield at the top. And down the side, we have the roll call for some of the characters in this issue, and they are... Superman. Batman. Black Canary. Green Arrow. Aquaman. Other heroes do feature, so that's fine. And at the front, we have some of the assembled leaguers in the background standing on top of a plinth. We have the figures of Superman and Batman, but their faces are missing. It's just white instead of it, including actually including Superman's hands. They're just yes. pure white as well. They're blank. Yes. And the Flash is pointing at you, the reader, and he's saying, Reader, this is a story about you. It's your turn to be either Superman or Batman. And at the bottom, there's a big splash that says, the most unusual JLA story ever, where you are hero and villain. I like the Flash breaking the fourth wall. He's got previous. Yes, it's a very Flash thing to do. For yeah. doing this in covers. A Neil Adams cover. Listeners, I, have, I think it's about the 23rd. I will make it my New Year's resolution to have a proper tally of how many comics with Neil Adams covers we have covered. A Neil Adams Barry Allen is very dynamic. Mm-hmm. Hawkman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Black Canadian. Green Arrow in the background, all looking very thoughtful and pensive, almost yes. as if they're considering the implications of what the Flash is saying. But you're right, it's very effective just seeing Batman and Superman as empty shells. Yeah, and it is one of the most unusual GLA stories ever. So, yes, so yes, definitely one of the most unusual ones we're going to cover. When Peter told me about it, I was like, right, okay. And then I had a read <laughs> through it, and then I kind of went, okay. <laughs> we thought about maybe not doing it. Yeah. But We've kind of committed to this fourth wall thing, haven't we? Yeah, plus it's so unusual that we kind of have to talk about it anyway. Yeah, it falls into a remit of doing those stories where we can sort of suggest that it's a visit to Earth Prime. We're still some way away, obviously, from that famous issue of Brave and the Bold featuring Sergeant Rock, which mm. just takes all that sort of stuff to a next level. Of course. We anticipate that one greatly. We might, mm-hmm. will we get to that by this time next year? We might not, actually. We'll see what happens. Anyway. We're going to jump straight into the story. We have an opening splash panel which shows Hawkman, Superman, Flash, Green Lantern and Batman all sat around the table. The Atom is in a little chair that's on the table. They're obviously having a meeting which is being chaired by Aquaman who's thumping his gavel on the table as the Flash takes the minutes. There's quite a lot of text in this. We start off, Aquaman is saying, This meeting of the Justice League of America is called to order. And we have an inset panel which shows a hand beckoning and almost some dialogue that says, Come, reader, join in the greatest gathering of dynamic personalities ever united in one cause. And then we're introduced to all the characters around the table. Superman, Man of Steel, Hero Among Heroes. Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, Rotating JLA Chairman. The Batman, Dark Knight Detective. The Flash, Fastest Man Alive. Hawkman, Feathered Fury of the Skies. The Atom, World's Smallest Superhero. Green Lantern, Power Ringed Gladiator. And then there's a larger traditional caption box at the bottom that reads, Presenting the most unusual JLA saga ever. The The most dangerous dangerous dreams dreams of all. And we get a little roll call of who's involved in producing this story. Mike Friedrich, writer. Dick Dillon, pencils. Joe Giella, inks. Julie Schwartz, editor. The most dangerous dreams of all. 
that reminds me of something else. Right. Mm. So, our story begins. The caption for the first panel on page two. After their respective solo adventures are exchanged and business conducted... The JLA all have very serious faces as they listen to Aquaman. That concludes this regular meeting of the Justice League. As Secretary Flash will forward the minutes to the absent Green Arrow and Black Canary. Meeting adjourned. The next panel shows Green Lantern being the first to enter into the transport tube. The others watching the captions. The next few panels read... Business concluded. The world's greatest superheroes enter the Thanagarian transporter, which takes them 22,300 miles from their space sanctuary satellite to the Earth below to emerge on a concealed area of a roof atop a skyscraper housing a certain celebrated publishing firm. Yes, we see Batman emerging with the atom on his shoulder. That's dangerous. <laughs> what if the Dats had a fly-like incident exactly. there? Well, that's what I meant. That's, yes. you know, a, when we write our DC comic... We'll have the adventures of the Batman. Yes, or the Atman. Atman. Excellent. Final panel on page two, I think I might put on the socials. This is wonderful, yeah. Caption says, Switching to their secret civilian identities, they take a private elevator to street level, where they mingle among crowds of people completely unaware of their existence. Ordinary people, the Justice Leaguers just like you or I. And don't we each secretly know that despite appearances, we are all something more? Yeah, we see, obviously, Bruce Wayne because he's got that flowery scarf, which is quite similar to the gear he was wearing in that issue of Batman we did Mm -hmm. not too long ago. Clark Kent behind him. Aquaman looking, actually, looking like he's in series two of Blake 7. Yes, yes. With his deep V-neck green shirt and his brown waistcoat and in the background behind him, we can see police scientist Barry Allen, who looks like Ray Palmer. Behind Bruce Wayne over his left shoulder, we can see the civilian Carter Hall and civilian Hal Jordan wearing a black and sort of pink striped shirt. Peter, we need to find a couple of striped shirts to get our photos taken in. Definitely, always. I think think the next time we both have the same day off, we can do some charity shops grounding. Definitely. So we go on. This great panel, it reminds me very much of the very first GLA comic I had, which was the spoilers, The Atom's Wedding. But it has that oh, okay. scene of them all in their civilian clothes with a superhero identity sort of looming over them. It's very interesting to, to little Davies sort of go, ooh, that's what they all look like. <laughs> this very interesting panel is rounded out with another caption that says, This is the story for the superhero in us all. This story is about me. And it's also about you. And at that point, we arrive at the top of page three and we are introduced to Mike Friedrich, the, the writer of this story. He is addressing us directly. We can see him sat with his typewriter. The very youthful Mike Friedrich at this point. Mm-hmm. Young man, side party, dark hair, wearing a loose blue shirt. And he's saying, Like pounding cold California sea waves splashing over an indefensible swimmer, the man in story about to unfold are pressuring me to tell this tale. Why, you ask? Read on. And the caption for panel two, page three, says, You're waiting on Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles thinking of its wind from nature's soothing sea surf through the heart of man's glaring Tinseltown, USA, Hollywood. And we see an awful lot of very young, contemporary-looking American folk. Girls with long hair, boys with headbands, long hair and facial hair, riding along in open-top cars, waving. We see the neon lights as the caption continues. This is the strip. This is where the action is. This is where we find you tonight. Things start to get a bit the Sandman, if you ask me, here, <laughs> listeners. Next panel shows a blonde lady with a white jacket sort of fastened up. And behind her is a youngish looking man. He looks a bit like Scott Summers from the X-Men. He does, yeah. Except he's not wearing red glasses, but mm-hmm. dark glasses. He has a neat blouse style leather jacket. He's wearing a green tie, green trousers, has a striped shirt, neat side parting, magnificent sideburns. And Mike Friedrich's narration continues. As you wait, turn your head and meet Harlequin Ellis, small town Ohio boy in the big time. He writes for television and he's paid well, very well. He's wearing his name like a neon sign tonight for he's the flashy clown. The smiling swinger, every grin of his shining teeth broadcasting, I'm with it. I'm not quite sure whose perspective we're supposed to be at this point. Is it, are we supposed to be with the blonde lady? Are we supposed to be with the young man in the shades? It's very, very unusual. The next panel is captioned. Turning your head back, the corner of your eye sees why Ellis was dubbed by a leading movie mag, the most eligible bachelor in Hollywood. You also can tell that this sleek, arrogant tiger is on the prowl. Yes, panel four shows Harlequin Ellis, who we've now met, sort of very conspicuously turning his head to clock the blonde lady who we saw in the previous panel. Caption for the final panel on page three. And tonight, he's stalking you, Dinah Drake Lance, alias the Black Canary. Yeah, the front of the panel we can recognise her now as Black Canary. 
Her jacket's open. We can see her uniform underneath. Harlequin seems to be rubbing his hands together in the background and thinking, Well, well, check out this action, Ellie, baby. And the first panel of page four, with all the neon lights blazing in the background, the busy pavement, he approaches Canary and says, What's a beautiful young lady like you standing here alone for? Need some company? And the narration in panel two. You laugh at his obvious come on and are about to brush him off when you chance to look deep in his eyes. Then suddenly, you know that when this man falls for a woman, he falls all the way. Yeah, shot Canary smiling. Him looking very serious, very earnest. How she can see deep into his eyes through those shades, yeah, I'm not too sure. thinking the same thing. Mm. Logopolis. Panel 3's caption. Within moments, you find yourself sharing with a virtual stranger those things only a select few know. They're sat in a booth in a coffee place now. Hands on a table. Canary is saying, When my husband died, I was stranded, cut loose. The hurt's taken so long to heal. In the quiet of night, when I'm alone, the pain still throbs dully down deep. Three times have I lost a wife, always a warm and beautiful woman. My heart was ripped open and dashed on the rocks each time. We're outside the coffee shop in panel four. Green Arrow suddenly appeared and he's watching inside as Harlequin takes Canary's hand and says, Yes, I too know the loneliness of heartbreak, the eternal loss of someone I've loved. You and I have much in common. Panel five is a close shot of them holding hands. The caption says, as his hand touches yours and your eyes meet once more, you suddenly see yourself on the edge of the pit of his soul, looking into the blackness beneath you. And you're afraid, for there is another one. Yes, Green Arrow's hand comes in and grabs Harlequin harshly by the shoulder. Harlequin turns and says, What? And then in the first panel of page five, Green Arrow pulls Harlequin out of his chair, hoists him up and says, Buster, if you're trying to do what I think you're trying to do, I'm gonna... Green Arrow! What are you doing? says Canary. Doing? I'm cutting this flashy phony off at the pass. Hold off now. Don't get envious, Greeny. I'm not playing your power threats game. If the lady comes, it'll be her choice. Yes, Harlequin's trying to push Green Arrow away and he breaks from him in the next panel. We can see a member of staff in this establishment looking very stressed and concerned in the background. Harlequin says, Which reminds me, beautiful, if you want to make a smart move and dump this crude bozo... Dig me at the Derrick at 2 this a.m. Why, you little wiseacre? G.A. No, says Canary. She moves forward and tries to restrain Ollie by putting her arms around his neck, trying to kind of hold him back. The caption for the next panel. Though his smile flashes and his dark glasses twinkle, you've tottered near the pit and seen another man. Final panel of page five shows Harlequin very casually, with the door wide open, leaving the coffee place. It's almost like he's waving back to Green Arrow and Black Canary, who are Shrouded in darkness, we can't really see Canary's face at all. Ollie doesn't look happy. The final caption for page five. You know Ellis is hurt badly, and suddenly you are troubled, Black Canary. First couple of panels of page six show Harlequin Ellis approaching and then entering a large building. This is a little flight of steps up to a very large house. Slams the door shut behind him. Panel three, he walks up a flight of stairs, and we can see there's a light on in another room. It appears to be the kitchen. There's an older man wearing a white shirt and a loosely knotted orange tie, thick grey hair, and a woman wearing a fitted red dress, large framed lens glasses. They have cups of coffee. The man says, Hmm. What was that all about? How the dickens should I know? You're his secretary, you tell me. <sighs> well, I suppose it's time to play Sue the Ruffled Feathers again. Wonder what he's sulking about now, she says as she stands up from the, the chair she was sat on at the table. The man puts his cup down and says, Probably some girl has him strung out again and you'll have to straighten him out as usual. Final panel, page six, shows this woman making her way up the stairs as she looks back and says, Ha! I'm not playing that scene again. Remember the last time I tried to intervene? Ellie didn't speak to me for a month. First panel, page seven. She, whoever she is, has opened the door to the room that Ellie is sat in and she says, Ellis? You see him looking... <laughs> I have to be careful with my language here. Not looking too good. He sat at mm. typewriter. He's taken off his shades. The woman's standing behind him and she's saying, Let's get it out front, fast. What torch you carrying this time? Come on, Harlequin, you phony clown. I passed through the teeny bopper phase a long time ago. Your flashy pose doesn't fool me. He doesn't respond. Next panel, she's walking back down the stairs towards the grey-haired man in the white shirt and she says, Ellie didn't hear a word I said. He shut himself in his writing trance again. I even tried the abuse method, but it didn't break through. I swear, he must be really in another world when he gets in that swivel chair of his. The rest of page seven is taken up by a shot of Harlequin Ellis with his 
Ty loosened, looking feverish, with images floating around, probably in his mind's eye. The captioning says, Many are the unexplained mysteries of creative genius. Inside Harlequin Ellis's head is a fantasy world of his own making. Only this time, there's a difference. So great is the power of his wounded feelings for Black Canary, so great the depth that his mind has reached out its dark tentacles and enveloped new figures within his story world. Yes, it's almost as though he's seeing Green Arrow and Black Canary, and looming up behind them is a cyclops. Will we see a cyclops again soon on this podcast? I wonder. Yes. Cyclops is a very, <laughs> a very hipster style yeah. ginger beard, long ginger hair. There's also a centaur who looks a little bit like David Crosby from the birds, if you ask me. <laughs> long brown hair and a thick moustache. But significantly, we also see Batman, who appears to be slightly wrapped up in his cape, and Superman, whose cape has been coloured yellow, presumably in error. Yeah. Although who can say in this story? Mm. He seems to be falling from the sky. I wonder if these images will return. The caption for the first panel of page eight. The barrier between the real and the unreal begins to break down. Now bear with us here, listeners. Green Arrow and Black Canary opening a doorway. It looks like they're maybe emerging from a cafe or a restaurant or something. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of young people to the side, one of whom has a large patch in the back of their cut-off waistcoat, which um, has a CND symbol on it. Is that the first CND symbol we've had in the story? I think we've had one before. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, I think we've had advertisements for patches and stuff. Oh, okay. In a story. Okay, maybe. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember if we've had one in the story. But anyway couple of hippie types, basically. Green Arrow is saying, come on, pretty bird, let's get a move on. We're late for the JLA meeting. And the person in the hat says, take the cat and the chick. Are they wearing far out clothes? Caption then for the next panel. Abruptly, as in Harlequin Ellis's current story, Green Arrow and Black Canary find themselves outside a small store south of the border. Yeah. South of the Border obviously was a single that didn't do terribly well from Robbie Williams' first album, Life Through a Lens. It was followed, of course, by Angels, the last-ditch attempt that turned him into a superstar. So that's nice. Is that the first mention of a... It's not the first mention of a song title from Robbie's first album. I'm going to <laughs> shut him there and get on with the plot. Yeah, there's a nice ripple effect to the next panel. And the background behind Green Arrow and Black Canary has changed. Can't quite make out the whole word, but we see R-E-C-U-E, and there appears to be some kind of log cabin structure with large windows behind them. Green Arrow is very surprised. He says, what? How do we get here? In the next panel, which still has the jaggedy edge, it looks like a figure with white hair has emerged from this building and says, Come in, senor, senorita. Americanos, no. Yeah, er, see, says Green Arrow. What do you know about what's happening? In the next panel, this gentleman, magnificent sideburns, is holding an odd-looking orange structure. It kind of looks like a pot or something. It appears to be handles on the side. It appears to open at the top. But he continues saying, Nada, nothing, senor. I only know that you would be interested in this. Something from our dim magic past. Canary looks sceptical and says, Magic? And then in the next panel, it looks as though this orange pot jug, whatever it is, is floating in the air and waves of radiating multicoloured circles are emerging from it. Canary reacts in shock. Green Arrow looks shocked. The captions say, As the ace archer and his beautiful companion touch the curio, their heads spin wildly. All becomes as a bright-coloured vortex's dizzying swirl as they step into the unknown. Then, nothing. And in the final panel of page 8, everything goes black. Gosh, tiny caption says, continues in the second page, following the past an advertisement for some jewellery. And then we arrive at the top of page 9, where a large caption inverted commas says, The first dangerous dream of Harlequin Ellis. Now, the panels continue to have that jaggedy edge to them for the next few pages. And we have an inset panel showing Harlequin Ellis, who, without his shades, looks much, much older than he appeared to be at the start. And he appears to be narrating things from now on. We see Superman in flight as Harlequin Ellis narrates, Ah, to be Superman. To soar through the air without a care in the world. To be a man above all men. To possess power far beyond those of mortal humans. Yes, there's a massive crash sound effect as we see Superman demonstrating his power by punching out some boulders so that they all shatter. We arrive at the top of page 10. Harley Quinn continues. To spy with telescopic vision your current love. And this is weird because we're down on the ground with Black Canary. We can see Superman up in the air behind using his supervision to look at her. Uh, I'm not into that. Canary is in the foreground looking a bit pained and thinking, uh, where's Green Arrow? That curio shop. Where am I? So she's obviously been dislocated since we last saw her. The narration from Harlequin, who looks a little bit like Paul Cornell in the next panel, continues. 
to swoop down and take her in your steel-muscled arms. Yeah, Superman basically flies down and bears Black Canary away, and their dialogue basically plays out over the next couple of panels. Superman says, Hello, darling. Come, join me in the wild blue yonder. Darling? thinks Canary. Then she says, Superman, what is this? My head is spinning. Nothing's wrong, my dear. Relax. We're alone, free, together. Canary thinks, something strange. The Superman I know wouldn't act like my boyfriend. She says, uh, what about the others? Where is the Justice League? Harlequin narrates on an inset. To be suddenly reminded of those you wish to forget. Superman looks very angry. He cries, the Justice League? Uh, my telescopic vision has located them. We see him using his telescopic vision, still bearing Canary along. Canary looks at him and thinks, at the mention of the JLA, he became angry. Why? So we arrive at the top of page 11. We seem to be rattling through this. Good grief. Another inset of Harlequin Ellis narrating as he says, To be confronted with the vision your sight beholds. Ah, yes, obviously. So Superman using his vision. This is what we see. And it's a sort of view down a telescope type look to this panel. Circular inset against the black border, which shows Aquaman out for the count, down the ground. Looks dead to all intents and purposes. Green Arrow is down next to him saying, His hour time limit is up. He needs water. In the background, we see Green Lantern, Flash, Batman and Hawkman. Oliver continues, Green Lantern, use your powering to save him. Flash, carry him to the sea at super speed. Green Arrow looks very angry the next panel as he continues, Why are you all standing there like dummies? Do something. Don't you understand? Aquaman is going to die. Harlequin Ellis, the very odd expression in his face is inserted in the next caption as he says, To realise your true nature. To recognise your responsibility. And back with Superman and Black Canary, Superman says, Great Scott! They're trapped in a cave! Aquaman is dying! It's my fault! I put them there! Canary thinks, Superman's fault? What does he mean? And then she says out loud, Why can't we help them? See, we, we are in a world of forgotten gods! Superman says, They're still flying, and we can see in the foreground of the panel, the massive giant ginger cyclops that we saw earlier on in Harlequin's hazy vision. Now, I must say, he coloured slightly differently here. Here's a, a darker, more mm-hmm. traditional red, but he has a large club. He's sat cross-legged on the ground. Superman continues, saying to Canary, The JLA is trapped inside that cave by a fabulous cyclops. So that's interesting that we compare Harlequin to Scott Summers and he's an yes. actual cyclops. Mm. What's Mike Friedrich's history with the X-Men? That's what I want to know. Canary sees the cyclops figure and she thinks, Stranger and stranger! Superman speaks as if he had something to do with it. Final panel of page 11, he drops Black Canary to the ground, saying, I'll rescue them, but I must do it alone. I won't let you get hurt. And as we arrive at the top of page 12, Harlequin narrates the first couple of panels. To feel your identity slipping away, your belief in yourself. To strike as swiftly as you can against a menace you know is evil because you created it. To refuse to believe your muscles are not those of a Superman. Yeah, because basically we see Superman punching the Cyclops in the stomach, but the Cyclops hurling Superman against the wall of the mountain that he was sitting on and the rocks breaking underneath Superman's weight. Another insert of Harlequin. To strain hearing that your sheer will is making super. Yes, an inset panel of Superman with little jaggedy waves beside his ear because he's obviously using his super hearing. And then we get another inset panel showing Green Arrow down close to Aquaman Green Arrow saying, My God, Aquaman, stop breathing. These two inset panels are on another panel showing the Cyclops looming behind Superman. Mm. Harlequin narrates again. To have sheer desperation course through your arms. Yes, and Superman triumphantly punching the Cyclops and sending him flying in the next panel. Superman has arrived at the cave the Justice League are in. We see everyone standing around stiffly, looking very solemn. As Superman arrives thinking, No, no, it can't be too late. And in a tearful Superman, Cradling Aquaman in the final panel of page 12, Black Canary has arrived in the scene. She's standing in the background. And a tearful Superman is saying, He's dead! It's my fault! A flesh and blood human being and I killed him! And the insert Harlequin Ellis at the bottom right-hand corner of this panel is saying, To have the walls of yourself washed down like melted ice. To be fully conscious that you are not a Superman. Harlequin... Now his tears falling from his face in the first little inset narration caption at the top of page 13. To realise you are someone else. Someone with a great need. And Superman seems to be freaking out right now. Green Arrow and Black Canary are standing in front of him. Superman is saying, Canary, you must understand. I'm shattered. 
Like a glass goblet, one that must be put together again. Please, I want you. I need you. Oliver looks appalled at this, frankly. Kennedy says, but but Superman, I, I can't. I don't understand. Narration for the next panel. To be the man of steel no longer. A very pained Superman appears to be taking his leave from the Justice League. Green Arrow and Black Canary stand very quietly watching him go. Over his other shoulder we can see Green Lantern with the atom on his shoulder. Flash, Batman and Hawkman all in a line. No register emotion at all. Superman has his hand up to his chest almost like he's in pain. And then in the next panel Black Canary makes a very interesting observation. She says Superman's changing. And sure enough, we see that Superman's features are changing and his clothes appear to be changing into, I suppose, what just looked like regular civilian clothes. As this man who was Superman is saying, I created a world, a world where I was a hero. Everything was mine. Into this private world, I bring death and lose the one girl who means so much. The next panel on page 13, well, Canary very helpfully explains what's going on when she says, Everything's disappearing. It wasn't real. Superman isn't Superman. Aquaman isn't dead. The JLA wasn't here. And sure enough, behind her, we can see Green Lantern, Flash, and Batman and Hawkman all fading out. The figure that was Superman is on his knees in front of them, holding his head. Green Arrow is reacting to it all, saying, None of this really happened. It's just a nightmare. And he continues in the next panel, saying, uh, A dream. And it's a burst of golden energy around them. We see that Black Canary suddenly has her white coat back on, and it seems as though they're back in the coffee house. A tiny caption says continued on third page following. We pass. Oh, it's the big Columbia Records. Yep. 12 records for $2.86. But I had a great time going through that advert a few weeks ago, so I won't do it again. We arrive at the top of page 14. The caption says, Once more, when you least expected it, Black Canary, you've seen the pit. Where but the slightest hint of rejection lasts forever. Yes, very odd panel. Still has the jaggedy edge that we've had for some of the earlier ones. And Canary is standing above some kind of rocky abyss and some boulders are falling down. Looks like they're falling down away from her into this rocky abyss. It's all very symbolic, isn't it, Peter? Mm-hmm. The caption then for panel two of page 14. Once more, you're afraid. Yeah, we are definitely back at the, the coffee shop. Because Green Arrow is saying, it, it's over. We must have imagined it together. Canary looks a little more worried. She says, no, no, it was real. Somehow... Some way, I can feel the nightmare resuming again. Oh, I'm frightened, Green Arrow. Hold me. And she moves in closer and Green Arrow hugs her tight. Canary looks very panicked. and must say the artwork here on this page especially is terrific. Now, change the location for the next panel, which is captioned. Meanwhile, in Elsie's house, one dream story shattered and another yet to begin. Yes, we see Harlequin... Looks like he's leaving the, the house, putting his shades on, and we can see the man and the woman, who we still don't really know who they are. Are they his parents? Is she his secretary? Is he his manager? We don't know. They're watching him go, and she says, There he goes again, without a word. And the final panel of page 14, we can see their silhouettes at the window of the big house as Harlequin has got into a car and driven off, and the woman is saying, Did you see the look of fury on his face? Something rotten must have happened in that story of his. I'd steer clear of him for quite a while. And so, as we arrive at the top of page 15, the caption for the first panel says, At the Derrick. Yes, and by that we don't mean the chirpy and cheerful member of staff at FP Glasgow. It's the Derrick with two R's and an I and a C and a K, because we can see the sort of industrial, sort of crane-style look mm-hmm. to the decoration at the top of this obviously fancy night spot. And inside, it's obviously a happening scene. There's someone to the right looks like, gosh, it looks like Tom Petty as he looked in the 2000s. There's another guy who looks like he shouldn't be there, but frankly, because his hair's obviously receding and it's all curly at the back. He's obviously far too old to be in this sort of place. A couple of young women at the front, one very striking lady with long hair and glasses and her pal sees Harlequin arrive in front of a very psychedelic backdrop and she says, Well, hello. Long time since you hit this night spot. And her pal says, Forget it, kiddo. Harlequin's in one of his dark moods. If you cross him... Watch out. You also see there's also a band on stage in the background. Organist looks like Manfred Mann, lead singer with long hair, straight hair and a moustache, curly-haired bass player guy. We can't really see the drummer's face. I wonder who they're supposed to be. Panel 3 of page 15. Harlequin has sat down as a massive big... It almost looks like it's kind of radio wave type pattern happening in a big screen above him. Very psychedelic, colourful pattern. This is very of its time. Mm-hmm. Very out there. Harlequin sits at the table for the remainder of this page, contemplating a cup of coffee and looking pained, and the captions say, Here's a writer who has discovered the most frightening yet fascinating power of all, to make his wildest dreams happen. 
but here also is a man whose every second is throbbed with the pain fire of rejected love. So easily forgotten is the death agony he inflicted on the dreamed-up Aquaman. So easily remembered is the real green arrow coming between him and Black Canary. Every thought concentrates on separating them, on divisive hatred, on final vengeance. Final vengeance would be a great name for a Doctor Who season finale, maybe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Turn the page, and there's a nice advertisement for an issue of DC Special. Adventure and mystery featuring the Viking Prince, the Silent hey. Knight, and Robin Hood. Good stuff. And mm-hmm. there's also an advertisement for issue 174 of Superboy, which is a giant 64-page issue with lots of reprints. One of which is in sale on March the 2nd, one of which is in sale on March the 9th. They're a week apart, so this makes me now question the date on Mike's for this being in sale on the 4th. Anyway, not to worry. Thanks always to Mike's Amazing World for all the information. We're now on page 16. It has a large caption at the top that says, The, the Second Dangerous, Dangerous Dream of Harlequin Ellis. It's another inset caption with Harlequin, who seems to be thinking or saying, Ah, to be the Batman. To be the very epitome of awesome vengeance, whose every move triggers fear feelings of the dark malevolent night from which he comes. Yes, maybe shot of bats on a mountainside. I wonder if it's the same mountain the Cyclops was sitting on. Could be. Mm. Harlequin's weirdo narration continues. To smile coldly from a shadowy perch over a horrifying spectacle below. Yes, Batman is looking down upon Black Canary stretched out in a flat piece of rock and Green Arrow being confronted by, well, it's a centaur. <laughs> a horned centaur. Yeah, which is obviously a man's upper torso on the body of a horse. This chap has, has horns and a thick moustache. He's a lovely ruddy complexion. And he's running towards Green Arrow, who oh, shows maybe the lack of his classical education. <laughs> I got a one from my old grade classical studies listeners, I'll have you know. Green Arrow exclaims, it's happened again. They've obviously experienced another translocation. This time, I'm trapped with a minotaur. No, you got that wrong, Ollie. Nope. Up on the rocks, Canary says, Green Arrow, quickly, do something before it kills you. The first panel on page 17 is a silent panel of Batman reacting. So now over to Peter for some silent Batman reacting, acting. I think I nailed that. That was, well, maybe you could have maybe lingered on it a little more. You may be a bit abrupt, and, but you know, it was fine. I'll it, do that in the edit. Okay, you can, aye, because you can maybe loop it. That probably works. The caption then for panel two of page 17. To have steely eyes gleam as a living legend. Half man, half bull wreaks havoc on the hated Green Arrow. So that's obviously, there's been a mistake there between yeah. what's been written and what's been drawn. I think Dick Dillon maybe didn't have any reference for Minotaur under a centaur. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. Off comes Razor, it probably is the case. Green Arrow fires an arrow at the creature. It bounces off and Oliver thinks, it's hide so super tough. My arrows have no effect. The creature bumps into Green Arrow and sends him flying. In the next panel, Canary, hovering over the cliff edge further up, thinks, oh, He's hurt. My nerves are shot, but I must go to his help. And there's a crunch sound effect in the next panel as the centaur steps on and shatters as Green Arrow says, My bow! Oh dear, this is not going very well. The next panel, where Batman still hasn't revealed himself to the others, but he's obviously had a bit of a thought about this, he watches Canary jumping down, thinking, No, she mustn't go down there. And then he says, Canary, don't! Canary looks up in the final panel of page 17, saying, Batman, you here too? Green Arrow will die unless you save him. You passed an advertisement for a Venus flytrap at the bottom of the next page. That's very interesting. Mm. Listeners, do you have a Venus flytrap? Write in and let us know. Will we see a Venus flytrap again in the podcast? We may well do. Yeah, probably. Top of page 18. An inset of Harlequin and his shades looking pained. The caption says, To have memories floodgates open to the previous time. To recall the gasping screams of Aquaman. To flash like dawn's first stabbing light. That to be the Batman is not to be a vengeful killer, but to be a hero. Yes, and over that little sequence there, we had a nice close-up of Batman looking thoughtful, and then Batman looking terrific, actually, it must be said. Looking Batman, Mm. as I remember him from when I was a little boy, leaping off the cliff into action. In panel four, he collides with the centaur, punching it in the torso. Final panel of page 18 is nightmare fuel. Yes. As with its arms wide open and a long hair and a big moustache and a vengeful, angry expression, the centaur rushes towards Batman, who appears to be unfastening his cape. And if indeed the first panel of page 19 is taking... See, this is where the Minotaur thing comes in again. Yep. It's a bullfighting mm-hmm. metaphor, which hasn't worked because they haven't drawn a bull. 
even though the figure does have horns and you know now that you look at the hooves it does look a bit mm -hmm. more cow-like than horse-like but it hasn't it's a failure of execution you're unusual batman has taken off his cape hurled it over the creature's face and in panel two he manages to punch it thinking must hit a nerve just right i'll never get a second chance he appears to have been successful though because in panel three the creature is evidently unconscious batman retrieves his cape harlequin narrates the next panel to know the greatest test is yet to come as you realise, you're more than the Batman. Batman refastens his cape, saying, Black Canary, you all right? That look! You're not the Batman! No, I, I am not. You know who I am, Black Canary, and why I am here. A very smiley face, always looks like he's wearing 3D glasses. Harlequin head insert narrates the next caption, saying, To feel a consoling strength in knowing you've done right. And we see Batman removing his cowl, and indeed, it's not Bruce Wayne underneath, it's the familiar figure of Harlequin Ellis. Green Arrow reacts, You! Canary says, Oh no, not again! What can I do? And the narration concludes in panel 19, saying, And to be the Batman no longer. Yes, Green Arrow down on the ground, Canary looking pained. There's a burst of energy as this Batman-Harlequin combo Fades from view. A tiny caption says, Continued in second page following. Pass a full page advertisement where you can fly your own 747 jumbo jet that's actually two feet long with a 22 inch wingspan that actually flies at only $2.95 plus 30 cents for handling and postage. Gosh. Listeners, did you? Let us know. First panel on page 20. The caption reads, You've returned, Black Canary, for fleeting moments. Your destiny is your own again. The fantasy world of Harlequin Ellis has faded once more. Yes, we appear to be outside the coffee shop. Green Arrow's down on the pavement. Hat off on the ground so we can see his curls. That's unusual. Canary seems to have lost her white jacket. She's kneeling down behind him saying, Oliver, you're still hurt. <sighs> Better believe it, pretty bird. That sure wasn't a dream. That flashy clown has got to be stopped. Now, this next caption is obviously, I think from Canary's perspective, like that panel of her watching the rocks fall earlier. It says... You remember the pit, and you know that this battle is yours alone. So Canary says to Green Arrow, No, you're going to stay right here till I send for some help. Then I'm handling our problem myself, my way. And a slow dissolve, Caption says, Shortly? And we're back with Harlequin, who's sat in front of that psychedelic background with his coffee in front of him. In the next panel, a feminine hand appears on his shoulder and a voice says, Harlequin? And the caption of the final panel at page 20, Your eyes meet his. And his lips do not move, but the music says it all. I get the feeling this comic was very script-heavy. I bet this was not done Marvel-style. Anyway, Harlequin and Canary gaze at each other. There's a massive space between them, and on the stage behind them, a spotlight is on a singer, who's obviously a big fan of The Who, for he is singing, See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. I saw Tommy at the pictures once. Did you? Saw it at the GFT in Tommy, 1996. Can you see you? Okay. It was just after the, not long after the, the short season of Hammer movies. And it was a bit of an endurance test. I think mm. I'd probably get more out of it now. Anyway. Fair enough. We arrive at the top of page 21. Once again, Black Canary, you're on the edge of the pit. And you're still afraid. But this time, you jump. Yes, I'm enjoying the, the heavy-handed symbolism as Black Canary leaps into the abyss that she was contemplating earlier. The narration continues in panel 2 of page 21. You've just laid your heart on the table. With just two words, Harlequin Ellis can slice you to pieces. He doesn't say them. Instead, you feel trust and affection return to you twice over. You know that your common fantasy world experience has taught him as well. We see Canary and Harlequin standing, taking each other's hands. Canary says to him in the next panel, Our thing has to stay cool. You know that. My heart belongs to someone else. I know. I can dig it. We all do what we must. Do you realise what you've done to Green Arrow? The doctor's with him now. I know. I'm really sorry. I can't express it. I, I get carried away. Lost my head. You've got to grow up, Harlequin. The clown is only good for kids. The next panel is in a very effective silhouette, as Canary continues. Hanging on your head is the painful part of love. You've done it before. We both have. Just remember, if it gets rocky again, you can be sure I'll come. Do what I can. And then 
It's a wider shot on page 21. Pulling back, we see a creepy mustachioed guy in the foreground <laughs> as they're standing hand in hand looking at each other and Harlequin says, Shall we go, friend? And then the first panel, page 22, we see them emerging from the derrick because that's where he went, obviously, and we don't mean emerging from the chirpy cheery chap from FP. They walk out. Green Arrow's standing in a pavement outside waiting for them. In panel two, there's an almost halo around Canary as Harlequin leans in and kisses her on the cheek, takes his leave, walks off, and panel three is Canary leans into Oliver to Green Arrow and she says, It's okay, honey. Everything's all right. I'll explain later. Do we have a story for the rest of the JLA? Harlequin takes his leave and the captioning continues in this panel. It was so easy, wasn't it, Black Canary? Yet you wonder why along the way it was so hard and wrought with danger. Without much thinking, you know the answer is all wrapped up in the complex personality of a man you'll never forget. Harlequin Ellis. And we are rounded out with another headshot of Mike Friedrich. It's very unflattering, which suggests that his hairline was really receding. Look at that comb over. As he addresses us directly, and I sit back and relax here now as Peter <laughs> has to do this massive soliloquy. Yes, I'm off to the shops, as Peter has to tell you that Mike says, Many are the things a writer is forced to do by the crash-pounding of his creative soul. This story was one of them. For in writing of this man, Harlequin Ellis, I am facing the eternal mirror. For who is it that actually creates our heroes' ever-recurring menaces to their lives, testing each fibre of their being to the limits? Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, Black Canary, Aquaman are just as real to me as to Harlequin Ellis. I believe in them. I must. When Superman bursts through a monstrous boulder, it is I who flex my muscles. When the Batman looks with vengeance on someone he hates, it is I who hate. When Aquaman dies from water thirst, when Green Arrow faces a charging Minotaur, when Black Canary looks into the eyes of another human being and sees his soul, it is I. And when Harlequin Ellis cries over the lack of returned love, it is I. Many are the things a writer is forced to do by the crash-pounding of his creative soul. This story was one of them. For there is no escape from the soul-shatter of the Nova awareness that I, in so many ways, am Harlequin Ellis. One take, by the way. One take. <laughs> <laughs> and then another tiny caption, which is written in almost sort of like, as they say in America, cursive sort of style, says... To H.E. that you might understand, brother. Mike Friedrich. Well then, that was actually much easier to record than I thought it would be. <laughs> yes, so there's Mike Friedrich obviously trying to get into Harlequin Ellis's good book, or, well, not Harlequin Ellis. Whose good books is he trying to get into, Peter? <laughs> I think everyone probably realises this is a thinly veiled Harlan Ellison. So that was obviously a little love letter almost, or <laughs> Mike Friedrich trying to get into the, the good books of Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Very mm. unusual. I mean, we have the Mike Friedrich fourth wall breaking stuff, mm -hmm. which lets us cover it you know, or Monday. But then yeah. Canary talking about her adjustment to being in this earth, mm -hmm. that maybe means that we could justify the... Yeah, definitely. Huh? The whole nightmare and dream stuff coming to life. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's, that's an interesting, after the fact, almost possible retcon mm -hmm. connection to, to the Sandman, which, you know, which yep. we alluded yep. to when we did the dreaming. Flash 176 and all that sort of stuff. Perhaps he's got part of Dr. Destiny's Materiopticon, like floating about, who knows? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I'm I'm almost at a loss for words because I think Mike Friedrich needs to get a room, quite <laughs> frankly, so to speak. <laughs> uh, it's a fascinating story. I, I do like to think of this as the Earth One version of Harlan Ellison. Right. Uh, which would make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I think it'd be fun. You messaged me in the group chat the other week. Um, You've mm -hmm. done some digging in, about this yeah. story, hadn't you? Yes. You're going to... Share, share the gist of it with the listeners. I'll share it with the rest of the class, yes. <laughs> so, you might think that Mike Friedrich and Harlan Ellison were big buddies. This was done as a, you know, a fun little nod. But it turned out they'd actually only met once before right. this, and that was at a Comic-Con, and basically they didn't really seem to have any meaningful discussions or connections there. Okay. But basically, Mike Friedrich seems to have written this as pretty much just a, a Harlan fanboy. 
Yeah, uh huh, very uh-huh. much. I mean, we should talk about some of the stuff mm-hmm. that Harlem is responsible for. Yes, you know, we, we should maybe give because not everyone. I mean, I've I've heard of them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Some of our listeners may not have, but I suppose you know, for historical context and all that. You know. Yeah, obviously, he's he's written such classics as like Demon with a Glass Hand and that sort of thing. But his his original script for Star Trek episode Setting the Edge of Forever. That's right, is award winning. So. Funnily enough, that's not it really much like the film script in the end, because Roddenberry had to rewrite the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah. that's the one that Joan Collins is in, listeners. I remember yes. when it was repeated in BBC in the, the mid eighties, and I was just sort of like, "That's Joan Collins," because I was mildly fascinated with her from Dynasty. Mm. I don't think my mom approved of me being mildly fascinated with the ladies in <laughs> Dynasty, to be honest. I prefer anyway, Dallas. I'll be honest. Coming soon, our Dallas and Dynasty watch through podcast. Yes. Uh huh. Uh, and we'll do a Patreon for Not Slanding and uh, yes. Dynasty 2, The Colbys. That's right. It would just be <laughs> me perving over Joan Collins and Emma Sams and Pamela Sue Martin and Heather Lockley. Or can you, would you, could you stand that, listeners? Let me know. We could do a drink along a Dallas. Victoria Principal as well, obviously. Anyway, right. <laughs> All these beautiful ladies that printed me at an early age. Yeah, so... So anyway, back to the plot. Back to uh, Harlan Ellison. Yes, so renowned writer, loved throughout sci-fi, he's so much stuff and so respected. He did uh, a lot of stuff with um, Joe Straczynski on Babylon 5 as well, especially you know, some of the setup stuff. And he even wrote, uh, was it just the one episode he wrote? I can't remember offhand. But yeah, he did some great stuff. He's done tons of stuff for television and he's written some amazing comics as well. There's a couple of comics that came out around about this time, actually. He did Hulk issue 140 which was the brute that shouted love at the heart of the atom. It's oh, the, the Jarella yeah. story, yeah. Yeah, it's really famous. I've read yeah. that. I've got mm-hmm. that reprinted a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You can see it from here. Yeah, He did a Batman as well, Batman 237, Night of the Reaper. That's uh, really well known yes. as well. He did the Cyclop PSY KLOP story from Avengers 88. Right. Which I've got, which is really cool. I can picture the cover of that uh, one. Yeah. And he also wrote one of my favourite Batman stories of all time from Detective Comics. It's called The Night of Thanks, but no thanks. It is wonderful and hilarious. Basically, Batman's out on patrol one night and he tries to help lots of people, but they're all okay. <laughs> what issue is that in? It's from Detective Comics, issue 567. It came out in July 1986 and it's got a really iconic cover. It's the cover with it's a purple sky background. Cityscape kind of makes the, the Batman cowl and cape look. Right. And there's a massive bat symbol projected inside of a building. So it literally is like Batman is the city. And on top of a building, you get a small silhouette of Batman. It's phenomenal. Right. But I love that story. It's one of my favourites of all time. It's so good. It's only a short one as well. It's not a full-length right. story either. It's not one that I recognise. I will, I will have to do some digging and investigating. It is collected. It's collected in the uh, 80 Years of Batman Detective Comics hardcover. I think it's probably in a few other places as well. And I'm yeah. sure it's on the DC Comics app. The cover's Klaus Janssen as well. It's absolutely amazing. Gene Colan does the pencils for the story too. Okay. Which is wonderful. One of my favourites, as I said. I don't think I bought any of the 80 Year anniversary ones because from what mm. I could see the, the contents were all very similar to the, the 75 years which are all very similar to the greatest stories ever told yeah it's a bit annoying that isn't it yeah. anyway so yes he's, he's done a lot more than the stuff I've just mentioned there just sort of mentioned a few things uh-huh. as we said Mike was a bit of a, a bit of a fanboy right and he actually sent him a copy of the script for this but hilariously he didn't put enough postage in the letter and Harlan sent it back <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but hopefully unopened, because that would be hilarious. Yeah, but then uh, Mike did add the extra postage. This is, I've read this from one source, I don't know how true this is. Right. But then Mike did send it back, and apparently Harlan loved it. So okay. there you go. I don't know about any further meetings between the two of them, but certainly prior to this fanboy script, there certainly doesn't yeah, seem to have been anything else, apart from that one Comic-Con meeting. It's almost like writing a song about an, an, another singer you admire or something. Mm-hmm. in the hope that they'll come and record with you or something, isn't it? I'm yeah, sure there are many yeah. examples, none of which I can actually think of. Actually, no, I can <laughs> think of one. The Take That Song, Shine. All right, okay. Mark wrote it about Robbie. You're such a big star to me. You're everything I want to be, but you're stuck in a hole and I want you to get out. You know, it's, it's oh, about... And, okay. of course, we know within a few years, Robbie came back to the band and they all kind of mended their, their wounds. And Gosh. It's a similar thing to that. It's writing in praise and maybe trying to reach out and create mm-hmm. a bond, which maybe isn't... It is, it's fascinating. I mean, it comes across as a little bit stalkerish and a yeah. bit... Yeah. Very needy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Because he obviously has H on a pedestal. Yeah. Which is very interesting. But it's weird that in the story, Harlequin himself is quite stalkerish. Yes. And very, very kind of broody, alpha male almost. Mm. 
you know, it's it's not it's not a nice portrayal of, no, of the character. Yeah. I mean, for example, the the comment where he says he's he's lost three wives. There were three divorces. It's not like, you know, they died in him like <laughs> like Larry had, you yeah. know. It was three people who didn't want to be married to him anymore. Mm. Uh it's not exactly hugely comparable, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I find that scene weird. It's very weird. It's struck. I mean, it's it's an interesting. I mean, you know, going back to the cover. Mm-hmm. This is a story about you. It's either your turn, Superman or Batman. Yeah. This suggests you're going to get a choose your own adventure style, where it's from the point yes. of view of these characters, and you can imagine yourself doing it. That's not the case. No. This is the Flash addressing mm-hmm. Harlan directly. And yeah. I think you've. Am I right in thinking there's, there's another wee anecdote you've got about that as well? Yes. Harlan was sent a copy of the cover. The original art for the cover with the word balloon changed. Uh-huh. So it actually says Harlan Ellison, this is you. Good grief. Yes. If I was <laughs> if I was Harlan, I'd be taking out a restraining order against all these people, <laughs> quite frankly. In my job, listeners, I deal with a lot of musicians. And a couple of years ago, I worked for a chap who was in a band called Earth. Can't remember the guy's name, which is really bad. I should know his name. And this basically, this guy is the man who bought the gun that Kurt Cobain killed himself with. Right? Mm -hmm. This guy, because Kurt didn't want his name on the thingy and all that, so he got this this mate of his to buy it. Yeah. I've shaken hands with the man who bought the gun that Kurt Cobain. Anyway. Yeah. And this guy made a reference to, he called them Cobainiacs. The obsessive right. fans that only wanted to talk to him about yeah. Kurt Cobain and Nirvana uh-huh. and all sort of stuff, rather than actually any of this music, this guy himself. And I'm, yeah. Mike Friedrich's attitude in this kind of reminds me a little bit of some of these people. It's very, yeah. this mm-hmm. is quite a public demonstration of mm-hmm. almost obsession. Yeah. It's quite, it borders on creepy, doesn't it? Yep. I don't know. That's that's what we're thinking about this. Shall we jump into the letters and see what I'd the, love to the people at the time thought because this is fascinating. So jumping forward to issue ninety two for the GLA mailroom, and the first letter says, "Dear editor, by now you have read Mike's ego trip of a GLA story. <laughs> the story itself is rather good, especially in that Mike refuses to explain how Harlequin Ellis is able to involve Black Canadian Green Arrow." It is a refreshing change from most of the costume hero stories in which everything is given a rational, even technical, explanation. That some things just happen should be recognised and admitted, and Mike has done that. Either that, or he couldn't come up with a rational, technical explanation. The story is a fine allegory. Whether Mike intended it as such is beyond the point. What happens in a relation that is a non-workable triangle? The confusion. The hurt. The messed up minds is rather subtly portrayed through the medium of near fantasy. The relations fail because we try to be something else. And through that false person attempt to create a relation, instead of just letting it happen, we try to give a reason and explanation. So H.E. tries to give Black Canary a reason for loving him, i.e. he saves her from a monster, and only fails because he refused to accept a lesser relation, because he refused to accept life as it is. This is very deep, isn't it? It is. It's torturous, quite frankly. (laughs) (laughs) But this is getting out of hand. Yeah, we know. I'm really writing to tell you that, though the story is good, there is a certain element that is one big turn-off. Mike's personal presence. It is pretentious of Michael to assume Mm. that the average reader wants to hear of the crash-pounding of his creative soul. A well-written story, and the more I read, the more I'm convinced that it is a well-written story, should be that through which the sensitive reader hears the crash-pounding of a creative soul. He doesn't have to be told of it. The final wind-up panel would be good in the third person, but first-person Friedrich is a bit much. Ha! I might thought this would never be written. And that's from John Cardoza. No address provided. The editorial response amusingly says, Mike Friedrich identifies correspondent Cardoza as his roommate at Santa Clara University, uh-huh. as well as good friend, decent critic, and off-time inspiration. Yeah. Really interesting. No, that's there is some interesting stuff there. I mean, like if Mike himself hadn't been in it, mm-hmm. it would have been a very different story. It wouldn't have come across yeah. quite as creepy and stalkerish. Uh-huh. It would have been more like Doctor Destiny dream manipulation sort of yeah. thing. Very wordy, John Cardoza. You're a show off. <laughs> I'm quickly going to read the third letter on this page before I do the fourth one. Dear editor, in regards to GLA 89, I've got just two words. You're sick. So to deliberately belittle such a wonderful author as Harlan Ellison is unthinkable, but to go so far as to call him friend at that miserable end is the epitome of poor taste in a comic. Kindly refrain from deprecating brilliant people in the future and turn your crummy little writer Mike Friedrich on something more worth his attention, like writing sewer reviews. (sighs) 
That's from Kathy James in Miami, Florida. The next longer letter then. Dear editor, JLA89 lived up to its cover blurb. No, it didn't. It was the most unusual story these eyes have ever beheld. Mike Friedrich has pointed out in a grand manner his, and in fact every writer's involvement in his own works. The classic case of this author-character unity is Ernest Hemingway, who always placed himself in the battlefield or in the bullring of his stories. The readers also identify themselves with the characters. This is true. Every time I read The Land That Time Forgot, I cast myself as Bradley. Oh, okay. Which is why I was so upset when Keith Barron died. Anyway, the readers also identify themselves with the characters, creating a direct line from the mind of one author to the minds of the audience. A total communication, which is what writing is all about. Now, a few words about another writer, Harlan Ellison. If anyone out there has not heard about him, find out. A great many people consider him a brilliant writer. Bright enough to deserve five Hugos and two Nebulas, science fiction's top awards. They're both still going to this day. Mm-hmm. Yes, Harlan Ellison is one of the big ones. Speaking of big ones, anyone willing to second my nomination of Mike Friedrich's 1971's Alley Award winning author? And that's from Carol Maris, San Diego, California. No editorial response to that one. So I'm going to pass you to Peter to read the next letter. Okay. Dear editor, although this letter is for you, it is more so to Mike Friedrich. The fact that you have in GLA 89 a literary classic which is definitely alley material, I'm sure you'll be told over and over. This letter has another purpose. It serves as a very personal thank you note. As a studying writer, I have just seen that mystique which I have always felt about my writing translated into a 22-page comics with an X story. Thank you, Brother Mike, and you, Julie, for allowing it to be presented. I'm only sorry I didn't get there first. That's from John D. Warner. Santa Cruz, California. And the final letter says... Dear editor, there's one thing you have to hand JLA89. It was original. I don't recall ever reading any serious comics magazine that treated itself as exactly that, a comics magazine story. What is this X in comics all of a sudden? I'm not into <laughs> yes. it. Wow, continues the correspondent. It wasn't until the second time I read it through that I got it. But what if all the readers got it and realised that a personal involvement with a character in a dream is far superior to merely observing fictional situations involving that character. Why, no one would ever read a comics magazine again. And then where would you be? Bruce Long, Whittier, California, I'm guessing. The editorial response to that, never mind us, where would you be in this comics-less, stop saying comics, (laughs) comic-less world, Julie Schwartz. That's interesting because it's quite an interesting thing about how invested in characters you become and Mm -hmm. how, you know, I cry at movies all the time. Oh yeah, me right. too. You know, yeah. I'll sit. Mm-hmm. I'll and I'm. You know, I remember some of the the bigger Marvel movies and especially event ones like Infinity War and Endgame and stuff. You're totally like, you know, uh, you know, totally get you know, because you're you're when spoiler when Aunt May dies in Spider Man No Way Home, <gasps> you're completely with Peter when he's mm-hmm. when when he's feeling it, and it's that's an interesting sort of thing about that. I suppose this story was trying to do is to capture that mm-hmm. essence of putting yourself in the place of the character and yeah. It was a really interesting experiment, but uh, I'm glad that we didn't have anything else that was really like this. Yeah, it's very atypical for the Justice mm-hmm. League, isn't it? I think maybe the whole hipster vibe and uh, hippie vibe of this is maybe what's made some of the letter writers say comics with an X, because that was kind of like the underground of branding of yes. of comics uh, at the time. Yes. DC didn't really do anything like that. Uh, no, Marvel right. did a brief experiment with it, but it didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, the closest mm-hmm. DC probably got would be something like Teen Beat or Plop or yeah, uh-huh. Brother Power of the Geek or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's an interesting story. I mean, I was kind of dreading recording it, but ultimately it was much easier mm-hmm. to record and much more straightforward to record than, than we thought. And it's interesting to think about the as we said earlier on, the dream stuff coming to life and all that, it's and the fourth wall breaking. So it's it does fall into a remit. It's an interesting one. Yeah. Mike Friedrich, I mean, God, I would have been frankly, I would have been embarrassed to leave the house for a couple, <laughs> for a couple of weeks after that was published. You know, it's uh-huh. so reverential. It, mm. It's a very public yeah. declaration mm. of idealism. It's very, very odd. Yeah. Well, the rumor is that once Harlan Ellison did actually get the, the script, he actually asked him to change his name. In it to Harlan Ellison to use his real name, but they wow, but they didn't. So you know, what in case he didn't change his mind and sued them, I suppose. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Gosh. So there we are. Yeah, one thing that I really liked about this comic at the very start when it refers to Aquaman as a rotating chairman. <laughs> Does that mean that he basically sits in a special chair that rotates through three hundred and sixty degrees every time he's in charge of the Justice League? Does everyone else just have a normal chair that I doesn't? I think that's it. Yes. Yes. The chairman gets to have the swivel chair. Absolutely. That's, that's, the, rule. that's the rule. On that note. Hmm. 
So yeah, very interesting story we thought. What did you think? You can write to us and let us know. You can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because we'll be putting up some lovely bonus content for you to see on Facebook and Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter at podcast underscore Earth 2. And as I always say at this point, if you're feeling that way inclined, you could go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and give us a nice positive review. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you go to our coffee page and buy Peter a beverage that will help pay for all that midnight oil he burned the other week when he was up all night editing Brave and the Bold issue 95. Gosh. Going to and from London and meeting Doctor Who and everyone and all that sort of stuff. Doctor so Who's? Doctors Who? Yes. Five of them. Indeed. <laughs> and he met Bloomin' Harry Lloyd. Yeah, and Michael Ironside. But yeah, but Harry Lloyd, though. Anyway. I'm Tyler from V. Anyway. Listen, <laughs> a very interesting story. We'd, we'd love to know what you what you think. Please get in touch and let us know. Indeed. And on that note, I've been Peter. I've been David. We'll see you soon on... The Earth 2 Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. Batman has not revealed himself yet, so he just watches Black Canary jump down. He thinks, no, she mustn't go down there. But then he cries. Oh, sorry.